0: Amongst the trees of a picardy wood in the heart of the Somme, men from South Africa fought the greatest battle in their country's history. This was Bois Delville, Delville Wood, Devil's Wood, South Africa's greatest place of sacrifice in the Great War. Picture, if you will, a small village on the Somme in the summer of 1914. It's south of the old Roman road that runs between the towns of Albert and Bapome. It sits itself at a crossroads, which a future mayor decades later would refer to as the crossroads of Europe, given how many visitors passed that way from so many different nations. But then it was a sleepy backwater, a village dominated by farming when we look at the 1911 census, and these are now all available on the Somme archive site, you can go on there and search for a particular village on the Somme and it will give you the census at different dates. And you can see who lived in these villages, what they did, and importantly, I think, how many lived in them. They were quite small communities. And this village was no different. So where are we? This is the village of of Longueval. And here, according to the 1911 census made in the Department of the Somme, there were 363 people living in the village, from infants through to some quite elderly retired farm workers. Farming, agriculture was the main employer, but on the road to the next village of Guillemont, Guillemont, was a sugar factory, and quite a few people that lived in Longeval worked there. Sugar beet, as today, was a major crop in this area of the Somme, and sugar factories existed in almost every village in that area, every sizeable village, to bring the sugar beet in to turn it into sugar. Today this is done on a much grander scale, with massive sugar factories existing to the north towards Arras, but then sugar factories were very much part of this Somme landscape. Like much of the Somme, Longeval had vast open fields that surrounded it. The hedgerows had been grubbed out many generations before, so the landscape we see today of these vast, vast fields is no different than the years before the Great War. But in this part of the Somme, it was an area characterised by woodland, and at Longeval there was a large area of woods just to the north of the village, marked on some of the old cadastral plans, the old French maps, as Bois de la Ville, and by the time of the Great War, Bois d'Elville, and this would be the name shown on the maps used by the combatants that would go on to fight here in the Great War. When general mobilisation began on the 1st of August 1914 in France, and a century later I was just down the road in a neighbouring village hearing the bells of many Somme communities ring out in remembrance of what had happened a century before when the menfolk of these Somme villages were mobilised for war. France relied on a vast conscript army, and while many Longuevallians were probably in the forces in 1914, others would have left and were back home in the village, working in the sugar factory, working on the fields, and they were reservists or territorials, and their orders to mobilise, to rejoin the army, came on that fateful day in August 1914. So the menfolk departed for war, and within a few weeks, war reached the lanes and the fields and the woods around Longueval itself. After the failure of the German attempt to reach Paris in the Battle of the Marne in September of 1914, the armies began to move northwards. But even before that, there had been combat in the fields around Longeval, towards Guimont, towards Fleurs, up towards ligny All these areas had been fought over in late August, when French troops had clashed with the Germans. So the crack of rifle and the smash of artillery had been heard by the people in the village almost from the very beginning of the war. By the autumn, the lines had begun to formalise and Langeval and the people of Langeval found themselves on the wrong side of the old front line. They were now behind the German forward positions, which from here were towards the neighbouring villages of Montabar and Hardicourt. That's where the trenches were dug in that late autumn and towards the winter of 1914-15. German troops began to prepare their defences in this ring of villages, and beyond them were the French, and the French civilians in Longeval, were now isolated. Early photographs taken by the Germans still show civilians in the village, and while there's no evidence that there was any kind of resistance to this, we can only imagine what it must have been like to know that your son, your brother, your husband, was at the front, and you were now trapped behind the enemy's positions. And while there might not have been any outward sign of resentment to placate the Germans who were occupying their village, its close proximity to the battlefields meant that heavy artillery shells coming from French guns would occasionally land in places like Longueval, and would kill livestock, would destroy buildings and perhaps kill or wound the civilians who were still there. The Germans also, as they built up their forces on the Somme, did not want the eyes of the enemy, even if they were civilians, to be seeing what they were doing, to be seeing their preparations and their defences. So gradually in 1915, what happened in all of the villages on this part of the Somme front is the Germans moved the population, the civil population out, and they were displaced not to the other side of the battlefield, the other side of no man's land, but to places further, deeper into the area of France, occupied by the German army. Some of these people may have gone further north to Douai or Lille, others further east into France. The Ardennes received a huge amount of displaced people from these regions in the north where the Western Front ran. But it meant that a year into the war, Longueville was now a military zone. Its occupation was entirely comprised of German troops, who took over the buildings, turned them into canteens and rest areas and artillery positions, supply and ammunition dumps, and Delville Wood, Bois Delville, became a rest area, a bivouac area, for German battalions going to and from the line. For the Germans who served here in that summer of 1915, gradually they began to see a change in the colour of the uniforms of the troops on the other side of the battlefield, British troops began to replace the French and within nine months this was very much part of the British sector of the Western Front and plans were afoot for battle. For most of that period since the French had fought the Germans here in the summer of 1914 this had been a quiet sector, a live and let live sector, there had been trench raids, bombardments, gas, and all the other activities of the day-to-day aspects of trench warfare, but with the arrival of the British and a different perspective as to what the war was about. The British view that the German wire was our front line, and patrolling and raiding and mining and artillery bombardments and everything else was all part of what they should be doing to put pressure on the enemy positions. The whole nature of the ground here changed. And it was quite apparent to anyone, even from the German trenches, that some kind of offensive here was coming because of the build-up of forces, the amount of artillery and the increased use of guns on this part and other parts of the Somme front. It was almost the worst-kept secret of the early summer of 1916, the approach of the Battle of the Somme. Now, we've talked over many aspects of the Somme battle and we won't repeat that here, but on the 1st of July 1916, that ground beyond Longueval towards Montauban, Hardycourt, was attacked by British troops at the join of where their armies were with the French. The French 39th Division attacked Hardy Corps. These were veterans of Verdun. The British units were POWs battalions from Manchester and Liverpool and other units that comprised the British 30th Division. And while we often see the 1st of July as that classic moving forward in the bright sunshine with the sun glinting on bayonets and men disappearing into machine-gun oblivion, the battle here on the southern sector of the Somme was somewhat different. The increased use of heavy artillery, much of it loaned by the French, and the bombardment that saturated the German positions around Mametz and Montauban beyond to Hardicourt meant that on the first day of the battle of the Somme here, while there were casualties the ground was taken, Montauban was captured and occupied by those men of the Manchester Pals, supported by the Liverpool Pals and many other battalions that served on their flanks. The French took the ground before Corps, and here was a foothold. To the north there was very little success, in many cases none at all, just heavy losses, those terrible casualties on the first day of the Somme, more than 57,000 killed, wounded and missing. But here, this toehold in the German lines, this Somme success to the south, resulted in the pursuance of the battle here. And over the course of the next two weeks, the neighbouring woodland at Wood and towards Troneswood and the ground to the north of Montabar and the entrances to Caterpillar Valley, that caterpillar-like valley that ran across this area of the battlefield towards Wood, another neighbouring area of woodland, this ground was taken and this enabled the next big leap to take place on the 14th of July 1916 with the Dawn attack. British troops on a wide front pushed forward and broke into the next part of the German defences and from Montauban towards the village of Longeval, troops of the 9th Scottish Division, veterans of the Battle of Luz, pushed forward and captured the outskirts of the village. The jocks had taken Longaval. But behind them was their reserve brigade, not made up of Scottish troops, but of men from another continent, men from South Africa, the South African Infantry Brigade. And here in their first battle of the Great War, they were about to move forward to pass through Longeval to that area of woodland, just past the village, the Bois delville, Delville Wood, or Devil's Wood, as it became known. But who were... South Africans that had come so far to fight here on the fields of France. When Britain went to war in 1914, it pulled the empire into the fight as well, and countries like Australia and Canada and New Zealand all stepped into the fray to support the British entry into the Great War. In South Africa, the situation was somewhat more complex. If you go back into what are often described as Victoria's Little Wars in those decades before the Great War, much of those conflicts, those wars, were fought on the African continent, and in particular the area of South Africa, most recently with the Boer War of 1899-1902. to 1902. Aspects of that conflict, of that war, had been controversial to say the least and Dutch settlers, Dutch residents of South Africa, had fought British troops right across the nation and been defeated by them in 1902. And a dozen years later, their nation, the nation they were a part of, was now proposing to enter a global war, a much bigger conflict on the side of Britain. And the Prime Minister of South Africa, General Louis Botha, faced considerable opposition to this, from that Boer community but nevertheless he raised a force of 67,000 troops who went to fight in southwest Africa so not across to Britain to fight in a European theatre at that point but to fight on home soil essentially to fight in Africa in an area that is now Namibia. It was as one veteran of the campaign said a series of force marches under the searing desert sun but the real war from the hierarchy of the British and Empire commanders was not in Africa it was on the Western Front and in 1915 had formed the first South African infantry brigade. Forming an infantry brigade rather than a mounted infantry brigade was perhaps a deliberate ploy. Mounted infantry had been very much part of the military experience of the Boer War and conflicts in Africa. They were less suited to a European theatre of war but the facts that this was an infantry-based unit to a degree excluded the cavalry, the horse-based experience of the Boers and kind of pushed them into the corner. So when we look at the statistics of the original enlistees into this South African infantry brigade we see that only 15% of the volunteers were of Dutch extraction. But these were nevertheless men who stood up. No man can offer more than his own life, and these men did just that, many of them having fought the British as Boer commandos only those dozen years before. And for them, the greater enemy now was Germany, and they were prepared to do their bit. And in that respect, I think that although their numbers may have been small, you see in that South African brigade, in those four battalions of it, quite a cross-section of the white male population that lived in South Africa at that time. Black South Africans were excluded from enlisting in this unit. They would go on to form the South African Native Labour Corps later in the war, a subject for a podcast in its own right, really, and I'm sure we'll get to that. What did this original South African infantry brigade, what was it comprised of? As we said, four infantry battalions. The first South African infantry that were recruited from the Cape Province area, the second South African infantry recruited from Natal, the, the border area, and the Orange Free State, the third South African infantry, which was from the Transvaal and Rhodesia, a lot of Rhodesians served in that battalion, and the fourth South African infantry was drawn from Scottish militia regiments that had fought in South West Africa and was known as the South African Scottish, and wore kilts. It was a kilted battalion. Ian Ice, the South African historian, has written so much about the fighting at Delville Wood and Longueville, says of that original South African brigade, There were few, if any, brigades in the world with a better class of men. The level of education and breeding of these colonials was very high. Most had previous military experience in territorial, volunteer and irregular units and some had served in the regular army. The middle class men who volunteered for service overseas were those who fought because they had much to fight for. The original commander of the South African Brigade was Brigadier General Henry Timpson Lukin. He was a, a British officer who had been born in Fulham in 1860 and at the time of the Great War was a 55-year-old Inspector General of the South African Union forces. He was a veteran of the Zulu War, and also the recent Boer War conflict, and he'd spent time before the Great War in that Edwardian period in Switzerland, studying the Swiss military system and seeing whether that had any relevance to what they were trying to do to build up South African forces within South Africa itself. So he was an expert in his field in many ways and an experienced military commander. I often think with Lukin, and we'll no doubt return to that in the podcast, that he's very much an undervalued, underrated military commander of the Great War. Coming from a military experience that was based in Africa, going to a European theatre of war and adapting very quickly successfully and gallantly leading his brigade in the midst of battle and going on to eventually become a divisional commander with great success at that, he's one who deserves to be much better known. And when we look at the original commanders of the four South African infantry battalions, we see that Lukin chose some very interesting, experienced characters to lead his men to wherever they were about to be sent. In the 1st South African Infantry, there was Lieutenant-Colonel Frederick Stuart Dawson. He'd been born in Brighton in Sussex and had been a regular officer in the British Army, having served with the Northumberland Fusiliers, and like Lukin, had served in many of those African campaigns. In the 2nd South Africans, there was Lieutenant-Colonel William Tanner. He was South African-born, the only South African-born commander in the upper infrastructure of the South African Brigade. In the 3rd South African Infantry was Lieutenant Colonel Edward Thackeray. His father had won the Victoria Cross for bravery in the Indian Mutiny, so he had much to live up to. But he had an interesting life. At the age of just 16, he'd run off to America and had lived as a cowboy for a while, before he too had entered the army. And the 4th South African Infantry, the South African Scottish, was commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Frank Jones, often referred to by his friends... ...as Fatty Jones. He was also British-born, born in Bristol... ...and had previously served in the Welsh Regiment... ...so it makes perfect sense, as everything does in the army... ...a Welsh Regiment officer commanding a South African Scottish unit. But joking aside, for Lukin, these men were credible individuals... ...men who he had surety in that they would lead the troops well... ...when the time came in the midst of battle... ...and that's something that was certainly proved to be correct when we look at the story of Delville Wood. Following its formation, its initial training in South Africa, the brigade of nearly 4,000 officers and men set sail for England in November of 1915 and were sent to Borden Camp in Hampshire for further training. This was over a year into the war and there was lots to learn about in terms of what was happening on the battlefield. Gas was now a part of the front line, a part of the battlefield, where these men would serve, and while there had been no gas training in South Africa, here they gradually had to learn about gas masks and what poison gas could and would do. It was a rude awakening to the fact that this was not a fight on the veldt. They were going to fight a modern total war against a considerable enemy, Imperial Germany, using the latest cutting-edge weaponry. But that, for a while, was put on hold when initially the South African Brigades was attached to the 16th Irish Division, which was getting ready to be sent overseas. Instead, they were taken away from that and diverted to Egypt. So the whole brigade set sail once more to Egypt, to the Suez Canal area, and they arrived here in December of 1915 to take up positions alongside many other formations that would eventually be part of that famous Somme story, Of 1916, men from the POWs battalions of the British 31st Division, battalions recruited in places like Accrington and Barnsley and Bradford and Hull and Leeds, and also Midland Territorials from the 46th North Midland Division who were here for a brief period before they returned to France. It must have been probably frustrating for the South African Brigade to think that it had been raised for European service had got to England to begin its training and preparations for the front line somewhere on the Western Front, only to be diverted to the Suez Canal. But the Suez Canal marked the area of the border between the British Empire and the Ottoman Empire, and the Turks had threatened to cross the canal at this time, which is why troops were sent there. That didn't happen, and when the risk of the Turks coming into Egypt subsided, the troops that had been defending that ground were sent to other theatres of war, and the South African Brigade found itself sailing for a third time, not back to England, but this time to France, and they landed at Marseille in April of 1916, to a rapturous reaction from the French. In fact, when we look at the French press and wartime magazines of this period, we see them covering the arrival of many Empire troops from Egypt enthusiastically, troops from Australia and New Zealand but also South Africans and there are photographs of the South African Scottish marching from the docks beginning their journey into France. From the docks they boarded trains to take them along the railway systems of France up towards where the real war was and this was not luxury train accommodation, it was being rammed into boxcars to wagons that had on the side painted in French 40 men, 8 horses, and a lot more than 40 men went into each boxcar. The trains moved slowly and the journey was long as it took them from southern France into the area close to Paris and then up towards the northern end of the Western Front. And they arrived at the railheads between Hazebrouck and Balliol and occupied the front line beyond the town of Armentieres and up into Belgium. Some South Africans served close to Plugstert Wood during this period, for example. And this was not where they were going into battle. They were moving up into what were becoming known as nursery sectors, where troops arriving on the Western Front for the first time could be sent to acclimatise to the conditions of what war in this theatre was all about. So the South Africans found themselves holding these quiet sectors, carrying out these day-to-day activities of trench warfare, and, of course, losing men in the process. When we go to that area of the battlefields today, we will find South African graves of men killed by snipers, by rifle grenades, trench mortars, shell fire and all the other paraphernalia that was used by both sides on these static fronts to harass each other and to cause casualties. So it was experience always at a cost. And here they became part of the 9th Scottish Division. Now, this unit was the very first unit formed as part of Kitchener's army in 1914. It was part of what was known as the first 100,000, the first 100,000 volunteers to join up in response to Kitchener's poster pointing directly at you, enticing you to enlist for king and country. And it had fought at the Battle of Lewes in September and October of 1915. And in the fighting around the Hohenzollern Redoubt, it had suffered terrible casualties including its original divisional commander Thessiger who'd been killed in the fighting for the Hohenzollern Redoubt. After lose, the casualties amongst those Scottish battalions were considered so high that one entire brigade was disbanded and the South African brigade then took its place. So while it retained its title 9th Scottish Division one third of its troops now were from South Africa and I'm sure having a South African Scottish battalion as part of that brigade probably helped in them being accepted. As the summer of 1916 approached, it was clear to those British and Empire forces serving on the Western Front that a major operation was about to begin, seeing the huge stockpiles of shells and the increased number of guns and the increased size of the British Expeditionary Force, with men from every far-flung corner of that empire now serving here in France and Flanders. And for the South Africans, that came in late June of 1916 when the division they were a part of, the 9th Scottish Division, began to move down to the Somme area in preparation for the offensive. They'd not been selected for the first waves of the attack, an attack which, following a devastating bombardment, was meant to rupture the German line and the troops would push on to the major towns of Bapome and Peron, and then beyond into the hinterland, and perhaps break this part of the Western Front. While the Battle of Verdun had started in the previous February, and the French army was battling to hold that ground, I think most men who were probably on the Somme in 1916, while they were aware of the Battle of Verdun, they didn't see the offensive they were about to launch as some kind of diversion or relief for Verdun. They saw it as what it was billed to them as being the big push the breakthrough. And that's what the South African Brigade was marching towards. The battle had begun. They were now being moved up to take part in an attack, not on the first part of the German defences, but in the ground beyond that. A route, a road that would take them to Delville Wood. The South African entry into the Battle of the Somme came via a series of route marches and movement by train. They got to Corby in late June of 1916 and on the eve of the battle some of the South African battalions were at Grovetown, a camp just outside Albert, and they would have heard the events of the following day as the crescendo of shells reached its pinnacle and the whistles blew in the din of battle returned as that fighting on the 1st of July 1916, the first day of the Battle of the Somme, took place. For most of the South Africans, their first experience of the front line area on the Somme was between the village of Montauban and Bernafay Wood, which had been captured in the first week of the battle. There they just held the line until the attack on the 14th of July 1916 took place. In that attack, as part of the Battle of the Bazentown Ridge, British units commanded by Lieutenant General Walter Congreve VC, launched a dawn attack, a dawn assault on the German lines. One of the problems of the first day of the Battle of the Somme is at zero hours at 7.30 in the morning when it was broad daylight. This had been on the insistence of the French. Here at the attack at Bazentown, along that ridge, they attacked in the darkness, just enough darkness to give them some cover, just enough early morning light so they could see where they were going. There was a lot of opposition to this, not in the least from some of the senior commanders on the Somme, who felt that this kind of manoeuvre in the darkness could not be achieved on Salisbury Plain in peacetime, let alone under wartime conditions, but Congreve pressed his plan home, and the attack was made and was very successful in a wide area from beyond Contalmaison across to Mamets Wood and Bazentin and Longueval and beyond was captured in a single day, moving British and Empire troops beyond the first area of German defences towards their second major area of defensive positions. The South African Brigade was in reserve for the 9th Scottish Division's attack on Longueval, They went forward following a creeping barrage. This was the first major operation in which that type of barrage had been used, where shells were dropped in front of an attacking formation as it moved across the battlefield, protected by that shell fire, suppressing the German defenders in their forward positions, and then the men would go in at the point of the bayonet. Now, it's being used in its early phases here, and there are a lot of drop shorts, shells dropping short of the target, landing on attacking troops, but it's put to good effect. When we read some of the German accounts of this battle, they talk about the British using flamethrowers here. So that, in combination with a lot more heavy guns, meant that that attack by the Scottish brigades of the 9th Division, it meant that they moved forward in the valley between Montauban and Longeval, took the forward German positions, and then got into the village their reserve unit, the South African Brigade with its four infantry battalions, was behind them and they then passed through and made their way into the village and their task was pretty simple. Move forward on that first day of the battle on the 14th of July 1916, pass through Longaval village and get into Delville Wood. But what did the wood, what did the village of longaval look like as the South Africans came into it? That sleepy little village of the summer of 1914 had now been pounded by artillery. Its buildings were in ruins, its church was only recognisable because that was the largest pile of rubble within the village itself. Its roads were covered in enemy dead and shattered bits of equipment, and beyond it, though, were the trees of Delville Wood. This large area of woodland, a mile square, the Bois de la Ville, you remember its original name, Bois Delville, on the maps, Delville Wood, in all of the accounts that we read of this period, and then eventually Devil's Wood, following the fighting here in 1916, with its devilish, its terrible reputation for the fighting, the tenacity of both sides as they fought between the trees, and the terrible casualties that were suffered by both sides in the battles beneath this canopy and beneath what increasingly became a matchstick wood as the fighting moved on. Because the wood had been a reserve area, a bivouac area for German troops, it had not been properly defended, and defences had not been built there, so there were very few trenches within the wood itself. The rides, the pathways that cut through the middle of Delville Wood, had been marked on trench maps and given names, so that if anyone entered the wood, they could say where they were within it and those names were selected from streets in London and Edinburgh. So there was the Strand, Regent Street, Bond Street, Princess Street, there was Rotten Row, King Street, Campbell Street and Buchanan Street, and the road that ran from Longueval to Jonchy, the next village, was known as South Street. All of these would be mentioned in battalion war diaries, messages written on the spot, and subsequent accounts by those who fought here. The state of the woods, when the South Africans first arrived in Longoval village, and there was this mass of woodland ahead of them, just beyond what remained of the buildings and the village itself, it was a wood that was in pretty good condition, despite two weeks of fighting on the Somme. Shells had dropped into the wood, trees had been knocked and felled by artillery fire, but it wasn't yet smashed to pieces. And this is high summer, So the wood was fully grown, the canopies of the trees were thick, and wildlife and birds and animals would have been living and trying to survive within that wood. Some of the British accounts of fighting in the other woods in this area describe them like a shoot in peacetime, where the soldiers are like beaters working their way through the undergrowth, flushing out the Germans as if they were pheasants. I mean, it was a lot more than that, but that was the analogy that was given by many that witnessed this wood fighting here in the summer of nineteen sixteen, and then there, with Brigadier-General Lukin amongst them, the South African Brigade made their first entry into a point in the southwest corner of Delville Wood. Lukin's orders were pretty simple: move forward, occupy Delville Wood, and hold it until relieved. There was no set period for this defense, no indication of when that relief would come but he and his men were there to hold against all comers until told otherwise. And he set his troops out into the far edges of the wood to build their defences, to dig in. The 1st South African infantry was close to the village. The 2nd South African infantry went up to the northern area of the wood and the 3rd over to the eastern side, the northern edge facing towards the village of Fleurs and the eastern edge towards the neighbouring village of Jonchi and then the 4th South African Infantry, the South African Scottish, were in reserve in Longueval village. Here he built his defence, and here the fighting soon began, as the Germans attacked from the direction of Fleurs, from the direction of Genchi, and the battle for the wood began. Fighting in woods is never easy for either side, whether you're attacking them or you're defending them. And troops at this time were not really trained to fight within woodland areas. There was no specific training course. Increasingly, that changed. So following these battles in the first few weeks of July of 1916, when troops fought in places like Delville Ward and Bernafay Ward and Trones, Mamets, even Highwood, the units that followed afterwards, New Zealand Division, for example, were trained in this kind of fighting because it was now Expected. It was now part of what soldiers needed to learn, what they needed to know to be able to perform their duties on the battlefield. And there are a number of problems just in the basic facets of fighting within woodland. It's a wood full of trees, and trees have roots. So when your tasks, like these men from the 2nd and 3rd South African Infantry Battalions, were by Lukin to move forward and dig in on the edge of the wood. They were digging in amongst these roots, which is very difficult indeed. So the firing positions they built in that early stage of the battle were fairly primitive and probably only shallow. The Germans arrive and they then fight through, and fighting takes place within the close confines of these woods and around the rides. Both sides end up shelling the wood, and then you have a double shrapnel effect. That's another facet of wood fighting, in that when a shell comes over and hits the trees... If it's a high explosive shell, it explodes, shrapnel rains down from the shell, but it blows the trees apart and wood shrapnel then comes down, killing and injuring people beneath. It can chop off whole branches and some of these were big trees which had been there possibly for centuries with huge branches that if they came down on top of a soldier beneath, ...he's going to be seriously injured or killed... ...so this was another part of the experience... ...that the actual environment, the landscape you were in in these woods... ...was as much part of the enemy as the Germans coming at you... ...or from the German perspective as the Tommies coming in your direction... ...so this was another added aspect of the experience... ...but the fighting within the wood was was not trench warfare... ...this was a battle for the possession and repossession... ...because positions changed hands pretty frequently of a collection of foxholes, that wasn't the phrase that was used at the time, but shell scrapes, those kind of things, shallow defensive positions. For a collection of trees that had come down in the bombardment that could use as a defensive position, those changed hands. And the junctions of rides and the rides themselves, one side would push the other side back, take one of those rides, the South Africans would counterattack, push the Germans back, retake that ride or the junction of the ride and the battle often toed and froed around those positions which is why the naming of them was so important so that platoon commanders and company commanders and even battalion commanders could report back as to where the battle was actually taking place because Lukin, while he was right in the midst of it and he was in a shell hole area close to the centre part of the wood he could not see what was going on he couldn't look through the trees around him was this massive undergrowth, and he could see flashes and hear the noise of battle, but he had no clear line of sight, so relied very heavily on fixed communications, so the signallers of the South African infantry battalions setting up static lines from their forward positions back to his headquarters area, and of course runners bringing messages as well, and no doubt pigeons, although they're more likely to have been used by Lukin's own staff to send messages back to divisional headquarters which was located beyond Montaba. But what that meant was that the actual kind of cohesion, the command and control of Lucan, and indeed his battalion commanders over their own companies, was very difficult in this kind of fighting. So over the course of the next six days, as thousands of shells came down, and in some of the battles, hundreds of shells a minute were dropping on Delville Ward. And you can imagine the carnage that this was causing it was a very confused battle, but the South Africans were determined soldiers and would not give up ground easily, so there were attacks by the Germans. Ground was gained, counter-attacks, counter-counter-attacks, and the line moved backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, and gradually all four battalions were pulled into the fight within the wood itself, and casualties in all four battalions mounted. One of the South Africans, Corporal Herman Bloom, wrote this letter home to his parents after the battle. It was no tea party. We had only started when we were deluged with gas and tear shells, whiz-bangs, Jack Johnsons and all the diabolical stuff that Krupp's had ever invented. We got orders to advance. It absolutely rained lead. We still went on until we came close to quarters. It was terrible. There was no quarter given. When we went into the wood, the growth was so dense you could hardly see ten yards in front of you. But before long, there was neither a bough nor a leaf left. The bare trees stood out riddled with lead and the wood was a mass of dead and wounded. It was awful. The fighting continued like this for six days and six days, Lukin's men held on. On the sixth day, relief finally came and the men slowly but surely marched out of their shattered positions within Delville Wood passed through Longueval, and back towards Montauban and the positions behind the lines Lukin was there to take the salute of his men as we've said he was not a commander that was now standing there watching his men come back from a big fight that he could hardly imagine he'd been in the thick of the fighting himself seen the wounded seen the carnage seen the dead His battalion commanders had all taken their toll too. Lieutenant Colonel Tanner had been wounded in the wood. Lieutenant Colonel Thackeray, the former teenage cowboy, had been in the thick of the wood and was wounded at duty. And Lieutenant Colonel Fatty Jones, DSO, had been killed in action. Three of the four battalion commanders had therefore become casualties and only Lieutenant Colonel Dawson had survived unscathed. Behind them... They'd left the dead, the dead of the South African Brigade. And Frederick Tatham, who'd gone up to search for the body of his son Errol, who was reported wounded and missing within the wood, left this account of it. The dead lying in Delville Wood was still unburied when I was there, because burial was impossible under the fire going on. Men lay in layers. The South African heroes lie underneath. I wonder whether history will do them justice... Will it tell how, ordered to take and hold the wood at all costs, they took it, and then began one of the most heroic defences known in the history of war. For three days they were subjected to continuous bombardment by guns of all calibre. They held on with very little food or water. Over and over again they were attacked by overwhelming enemy forces. The gallant fellows fell fast under the terrific bombardment and attacks, but not a man wavered. Our gallant, splendid men, reduced to a mere skeleton of what they were. They died, our noble South Africans, but they held the wood. Thank God they held the wood. And Frederick Tatham, who'd gone into Delville Wood to look for his missing son, never found him. Errol Tatham, killed in the battle for the wood, his body was never found, and his name is on the Thiepval Memorial to the Missing. So what were the casualties of the South African Brigade in this six days of fighting? They'd marched into Delville Wood, 121 officers and 3,032 men. On the parade of the 21st of July, the total strength left was five officers and 750 men. This became the greatest place of South African sacrifice on any battlefield of the Great War. Delville Woods became South Africa's equivalent of Gallipoli or Vimy Ridge. It was a place of symbolism, of sacrifice, but it was far from the end of South Africa's war. The men of the South African Brigade made up from reinforcements coming over from South Africa went back into battle on the Somme again towards the end of the campaign when they fought at the Butte de Wallencourt. Colonel Dawson, who had served as the only unwounded battalion commander in the wood, replaced Brigadier-General Lukin as the commander of the brigade in 1917, as Lukin was promoted to command the 9th Scottish Division. Dawson was then captured the following March in the Marriere-Wood Battle, when the South African Brigade positions were overrun in the German Kaiserschlacht, the Kaiser's Battle. Lukin, he went on, as we've said, to command the 9th Scottish Division, until March of 1918, leading them into battle at Arras in 1917, when his division advanced more than any other troops that day. But after two years on the front line, he was exhausted and went home. South African-born Tanner and Thackeray the Cowboy both survived the Great War and lived long lives, and the men under their charge in that battle who survived went on like them to take part in many other battles across the Western Front, some falling later in the war in February 1918 when the South African Brigade was out of the line they held a service a memorial service in the shattered Delville Wood for the South Africans six days of fighting within the wood that was only the start of the Delville Wood story over the course of the next two months until the wood was finally cleared in September of 1916 battalion after battalion of both sides fought their way through this wood stories for another day but here in February 1918 the South Africans the survivors gathered and the wood despite being shattered by bombardments shrapnel incendiary and gas was already beginning to regrow we see that in the photographs that were taken at this memorial service a cross was placed in the wood made from the wood of one of the shattered trees and it survives today in South Africa. A desire was then, before the war had even ended, that somehow this would, this battle, and the sacrifice of these South African soldiers would be commemorated. And we'll take a modern journey now to see how that South African sacrifice was commemorated here. Our journey across the battlefield today Delville Wood begins in the village of Montauban, and I'll put a map of this on the podcast website. The village of Montauban, captured on the first day of the Battle of the Somme was where the South Africans moved up to make their attack on Delville Wood follow on behind the main assault by Scottish troops of their division. The village of Montauban is known for its connection to the Powers Battalions who fought here on the first day of the Battle of the Somme and in the middle of the village there is a memorial to the Manchester and Liverpool powers. From there you can follow the road towards Bazantin-le-Petit and on the outskirts of the village a track goes off to the right-hand side before the ground drops towards Quarry Cemetery. And if you take that track to the right and walk past the trees there's a very good vista from here showing the ground fought over in the attack on the 14th of July 1916 you can see the so-called Bazantan Ridge ahead of you and across to your left, the beginning of Caterpillar Valley, and the ground way over to your left towards Mamet's Wood and Contalmaison, where the British formations were fighting. To our right from here we can see Bernafay Wood and beyond that the treetops of Trones Wood. And it's important, I think, to come to locations like this to see the topography of these parts of the Somme battlefield, of of any battlefield of the Great War. It's not flat. A lot of people come to places like the Somme thinking that it's all flat. There is undulations, rising ground. And although when we talk about ridges, we're not on the scale of ridges in Wales or Scotland, nevertheless, on this kind of landscape, rolling chalk landscape, that rising ground will afford someone an advantage, and in most cases, on the Somme, It's the Germans that have that advantage. And we'll walk along this track following the line of assault made by the Scottish troops of the 9th Scottish Division on the 14th of July 1916, protected by their creeping barrage, flamethrowers, artillery and the German positions just short of the village of Longueval, which we can see ahead of us. And this track follows all the way into the outskirts of the village, and from there you can turn off and walk round into the centre, the heart of the village itself, that crossroads of Europe that we mentioned at the very beginning. And in the centre of Longueval there's a a very good café, the Calypso. There used to be another Calypso, Calypso 1 and Calypso 2, run by Jean Blondel, the, the mayor of Longueval, for many, many years until he passed away some years ago. The café is always a good place to stop and have a drink, but in the middle of the village here, you'll find the village war memorial. There's a British 9.45-inch trench mortar that fired what was called a flying pig. That was a, a relic of the Great War left over and became part of the our War Memorial in the 1920s. It's still here in the village. Very rare bit of kit, actually. And then from the cafe, we can go round the corner to the church. And although you can't actually walk this route yourself, which I always think is a bit of a shame... From where the church is, we're going to walk virtually across the fields there into that southwest corner of Delville Wood, where the South African Brigade entered the wood. And it is marked by a white stone column. These were put up by the South African Government within the wood to mark key points. This one, the entry point to the wood, and another one which we'll see further in, marking Brigadier General Lukin's battle headquarters. So ahead of us is the wood, and we're going to walk into that wood and it's a wood that is now returned to being a fully grown wood. It's an active wood. It's full of life. A lot of people come to these places and think that no birds sing here. I've often seen that about Battlefields of the Great War. In fact, as we discussed in our episode and Birds on the Western Front, it's far from the case. This is a place full of the natural world, the evidence of the natural world. There are owls in here, there are woodpeckers, there are deer. And that's just as it should be. The cruel hand of war, the power of man trying to destroy this, nature can overcome and did overcome that. And as we walk into the woods, we see amongst the undergrowth, as we walk some of the rides in this area, the undulations amongst the trees. And here we have the shell holes and the shattered trenches, not just from the South African fighting, but most of it, particularly the trenches, from the later two months' worth of fighting that followed on from when the South Africans were here for their six days. And that takes us into the very heart of the wood, a clearing where the South African National Memorial was constructed, and then much later in the 1980s, a museum of the story of South Africa, not just in the Great War, but in the 20th century, in conflict in the 20th century, was built as well. And in there are exhibits and photographs and artefacts as well as some incredible bronzes depicting the fighting here. The, The one called the Sixth Day that shows the shattered survivors of the South African forces emerging from Delville Wood really is a very powerful piece of artwork and worth going into. The museum's free and it's always worth a visit. And they've added a new South African memorial as part of the entranceway as you walk into the museum We'll come to the National Memorial in a moment but before we leave this central area of the wood if you go to the back of the museum you can see some of the other kinds of marker stones over to our left following the line of a trench that would take you to Brigadier General Lukin's headquarters position, which was basically a shell hole during the fighting here in July 1916, but Lucan obviously remembered where he was, he would have marked that on maps, and subsequently they added this marker stone to commemorate that. But there's also marker stones at the junction of rides within the wood, perpetuating the names like Rotten Row and Princess Street that were given to these rides and marked on the trench maps of the period. So those those to see as well. But one really special part, which is now easily found because there's a kind of a little fence around it now is a single tree the only tree it is said that survived the battle of Delville Wood that still is living this hornbeam tree which may well have been here for a couple of centuries now is in very good health despite the bombardments despite the shrapnel despite the lead in the ground some years ago a survey was done in Delville Wood of the toxicity levels of materials that are in the soil here, and they were very high, but despite that, as we said, the evidence of nature and the power of nature and the survivability of nature is all around us. As we walk back to the central part of the wood and back to the South African National Memorial, this is a very impressive monument. It was designed by one of the principal architects of the Imperial War Graves Commission, Sir Herbert Baker, And the bronze sculptures on it were designed by Alfred Turner. It's an archway with walls either side. And at the end of those walls are two memorial buildings with columns and a little stairwell that took you up onto the roof of the structure. So originally you could have stood up there and looked out across the shattered Delville wood. Sadly, that part of the memorial hasn't been accessible for many, many years. And there's also a feature in the wall of these two shelters which is a, a glass memorial case where the role of honour of South African forces was to be placed. That's now within the main Delville Wood Museum. On top of the archway are those bronze figures designed by Turner, a horse and two men. This symbolises Castor and Pollux, the twin half-brothers of Greek and Roman mythology, and it's meant to represent the two white races of South Africa, the British and the Dutch. The memorial here was unveiled by Louis Botha on the 10th of October 1926, over a decade since the fighting at Delville Wood, and survivors of the wood and the families of those who died here attended, but not Brigadier General, Major General, as he became, Lukin. Lukin had been on the original committee to establish this memorial here at Delville Wood, but he died in 1925 before the memorial was finished. It was built to commemorate the more than 229,000 South Africans who served in all theatres of war, of which over 10,000 died. And its construction here and the preservation of Delville Wood as a permanent memorial site was made possible by the author and politician Sir Percy Fitzpatrick, who purchased the wood from the landowner just after the war and presented it as a gift to South Africa. So unlike some Empire Commonwealth nations as they are today, the South Africans did not wait for the wood to be given to them. This place of South African sacrifice, the greatest place of South African sacrifice, was purchased so it could be preserved as a memorial. Such was its power to the South African nation. And as we walk away from the memorial and go to the entrance on the road that runs from Longueval to Jonchi, and we stop and we look back, we can see two lines of trees leading up to those two shelters where the Rolls of Honour were kept. And those avenues of trees were deliberately planted like this after the war to lead the visits of the pilgrim, off of that road and up to those two memorial chapels, essentially where the lists of the dead were located. Last week I stood there at the entrance on a quiet spring day with some friends talking about the fighting within Delville Wood and the carnage that unfolded and what the wood had once looked like, and thinking too about my own experiences within Delville Wood. When I lived on the Somme for quite a few summers, I used to look after this wood on behalf of the curator and the caretaker while they were on holiday. It was a great privilege, a great honour to do that, to stay in the Keeper's Lodge and come out in the evening and far from the woods being quiet and full of ghosts, it felt at peace. There were owls in the trees, and the deer now roamed the rides where the fighting had been at its fiercest. The South Africans, many of them buried in Delville Wood Cemetery, directly opposite the wood, others still within the wood itself, that will remain there for all time, their names listed, carved in stone, on the Thiepval Memorial. This was where their pathways of the Great War crisscrossed at this point over those six days in July of 1916. It was the start of their story, not the end, but it was a place that South Africa could and would not ever forget. Delville Wood, Devil's Wood, South Africa's anvil of victory, South Africa's old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Frontline with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at somcore. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, You can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon.